Our sermon text this morning is, uh, is Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that you are so good, that you are so trustworthy, that you are so enduringly faithful, and that even in moments where grief is terrible or we are deeply troubled, we can have the assurance in Christ that you will hear us and that you will raise us and that we will forever be secure with you. We pray these things because of Christ's accomplished work on the cross and in the empty tomb for our sake. In his name, amen. Well, we're still going through this series in the Psalms, so if you're just joining us, we're just taking a Psalm one at a time and going through those. And we'll be doing this until we get into September, so we have a few more weeks of doing this. Uh, and a lot of these opening Psalms have sounded a lot alike. A lot of the Psalms are talking about deep despair and deep grief and difficult situations, and yet God being there to deliver his people uh, specifically King David, from these situations. But this psalm, Psalm 6, which we're on uh, this morning, is a bit unique because it is what some scholars have noted as the first penitential psalm. It's the first one where you see the author talking about his own sin and repenting before God. And that's actually exactly what we'll see in, in the opening verse when we get into it. But before we get to verse 1, let me just sort of set this psalm up. The world is crushed by the weight of sin. I think we can all agree on that. We can all agree that when we look around the world, we see something more nefarious than simply breaking some rules. We see a world that is crushed under the weight of sin. And a holy God has every right to sweep that world into oblivion. 
I know sometimes we look at something like Genesis 6 and we see the flood and we think, oh, this seems so intolerant, this seems so angry and wrathful, and yet that's precisely what a holy God has the right to do. And that's what David, here writing in the psalm, Psalm 6, recognizes. That's why he cries out for deliverance and salvation. He realizes that the one with whom he must reckon is the Lord himself. It doesn't really matter about his enemies. It doesn't matter about his circumstances or his situation. Ultimately, he has to reckon with the Lord. And so he cries out for deliverance and salvation. And for David, the situation appears to be serious. He is near the grave. We can presume maybe he's sick. Maybe he's just exhausted. Maybe this is related to some of the preceding psalms we've seen. But this psalm also speaks to our own predicament. Because we too need deliverance. We too are crushed under the weight of sin. We too, if God were not gracious, sustaining the world would have every right to simply sweep us into oblivion. And ultimately, we too have to reckon with God. It is incumbent on every single person sitting here this morning and listening online that you reckon with God Almighty. And we are in desperate need of deliverance when we do so. So let's take a look at the psalm, Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So notice there's this mention of anger, and then the parallel line, there's the mention of wrath. And there's also these two verbs, rebuke, and then the parallel, discipline. So David's request is that the Lord would not discipline him or rebuke him in the Lord's anger and that the Lord would not discipline him or rebuke him in the Lord's wrath. And right here, the implication is that David recognizes there is a flaw within him that makes God just and righteous to exercise such discipline or to rebuke him in this anger or wrath. The Lord has every right to do so. Now, this is worlds apart from how most of us think about God in the modern world, right? Most of us don't think about saying anything like this. Lord, stay your hand because I deserve to be crushed by you. And yet, that is the message we see throughout Scripture. It doesn't at all mean to say that we're all the worst possible people or that we're exhaustively evil. But what it does mean is that before a holy God, we certainly don't live up. As Paul will write in Romans 3.23, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of our created intention. And we don't like to think about God being angry with us. We certainly don't like to think about being disciplined by God. We don't like to think about, as some people have put it, having the Lord's hand heavy upon us. That doesn't sound great. And yet, this is a theme we find in Scripture. We find it in Hebrews, that God disciplines those whom He loves. And as we talked about last week, and in talking and thinking about God's anger, we are okay with a loving God, but where we really struggle is with a God who is just and righteous and perhaps even angry. We're okay with a loving God, but the idea of a God who judges or upholds justice and governs the world by that justice isn't as palatable for us. 
It's not something we like. But David recognizes here in the very first verse that he has to reckon with the Lord. Even though he's making a petition to the Lord, he realizes that it is the Lord with whom he must deal. He has to answer before the Lord, and because of that, he keeps his own sinfulness in view. Notice he isn't pleading his innocence. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm innocent, don't punish me. He's stating that the Lord has every right to rebuke him and discipline him in his anger. And yet, he petitions the Lord for mercy. And we learn something about our own prayer lives here, I think, an application that's important. When we petition the Lord, we should remember who we are approaching. When we petition the Lord, we should remember who we are approaching. And it occurs to me, actually, that probably in, in the interest of citing the person here, that was uh, John Calvin's first rule for prayer, that we remember who it is that we are addressing. That we remember the state of our sinfulness and the holiness of God. Our petition, then, should keep our sin in full view. It is ultimately God with whom we must reckon, and David has resigned himself to God's justice. David is asking for mercy. So David is in some sort of situation. We'll see that here in a second when he begins to talk about how troubled he is. It's a bad situation. But his first reaction is to realize that God's providence and sovereignty reign over the situation. You notice that? He doesn't jump right into, Lord, deliver me from this situation. He jumps right into recognizing that God is provident and sovereign over the situation. God is governing the situation. His first reaction is to recognize God's justice in disciplining him. His first reaction is to recognize that God is, not, uh, that God is just to do so. That in himself, David is not righteous. Again, if I can cite Calvin, and it's occurring to me that Calvin is an obligatory reference for me every week in the sermon. So just get used to it. I feel like every single week, I don't know what sort of streak I'm on at this point. But he, he has great wisdom when we're talking about prayers. And, and particularly when it comes to the Psalms, he's particularly important because he preached them so regularly himself. Calvin comments on this psalm saying the following, From whatever quarter, therefore, our afflictions come, let us learn to turn our thoughts instantly to God and to acknowledge Him as the judge who summons us as guilty before His tribunal. So, if it's coming from another person, we still have to recognize that it is God who is exercising sovereignty over our life. He is allowing whatever it is to happen in our life, and we turn our attention to God. If it's some physical malady that we're dealing with, then we still recognize that as God. If it's some material uh, issue that we're dealing with, we still recognize that the first person we have to reckon with and acknowledge is God. Now that might seem like a difficult thought to grasp, and it might seem like Calvin's just giving us an ideal that's impossible. But Calvin actually didn't just have this in theory, he lived this in his own life. He lived it by example. Calvin married rather late in life. He married a widow who had several children herself. 
and she bore a wife to Calvin prematurely, and of course the baby did not survive. This was in the 1500s. In a letter, he wrote, The Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of my baby son, but he is himself a father and knows best what is good for his children. Again, such a view is difficult for us. This is why so many of the Christians that have preceded us seem almost otherworldly. It's like they're living in another world. It's like they know another God. And yet, this is how they endured life. This is how they were sustained. This is how faithful and trusting they were. This is how they bore up under impossible circumstances, all with an eye for the hope of seeing Christ face to face. And the corrective then to our modern way of viewing the world, and I think this is the right corrective, the corrective is to recover a robust view of providence. Now, I've used this word providence a few times, but providence is the theological term for God's governance of the world. Providence is the way God governs the world. Consider how the first Southern Baptist confession, the abstract of principles, defines providence. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin. And wise, by the way, is not a typo. I know what it says, but anyway, to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. Now, such theology, such thinking about God's governance of the world has sustained believers for centuries, for almost two millennia now. It is a resignation to God's goodness, to his power and to his perfection. It's the idea we've seen repeatedly in the Psalms, perhaps most explicitly in Psalm 3, where David states in the midst of fleeing from his own son, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Do you remember that? Where David has resigned himself to the providence of God. And yet in our modern world, this is a doctrine that has been scrubbed out of most thinking in churches. It has been scrubbed out of modern religion. And if it hasn't been scrubbed out of other places, it has certainly been scrubbed out of our thinking here at Monument Heights. I don't say this to be nasty, but in our own articles of faith, consider the fact that nine of the 20 articles are from the abstract of principles, and yet the article on providence was not retained. And so we have no bearing, no mooring here, no foundation to talk about God's providence. But this is critical. It's not only critical, it's comforting. Why is the doctrine of God's providence comforting? I think the best statement that I've ever read on the comforting nature of God's providence comes from something out of the 1500s called the Heidelberg Catechism, which, is, uh, which one of our Baptist forebears in the 1600s named Hercules Collins updated slightly and, and named it an orthodox catechism. So let me quote the Baptist here. He, he only differs from the original by three words. He, he writes this. This is why providence is comforting. We can first be patient when things go against us. Number two, thankful when things go well. 
Number three, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. And that's precisely what we see in this psalm. We see confidence in a faithful God. That's the basis of David's petition. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. Why? For I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. So here is an appeal for God's mercy, for His grace. And by the way, that word troubled is a key term that runs throughout the psalm. Uh, we see it popping up several times and we see a nice contrast in verse 10 where David is no longer the one troubled, but it's the enemies who will be troubled by the Lord Himself. Verse 3. My soul also, here it is again, that same word, is also greatly troubled. And then he turns his attention to the Lord. But you, Lord, how long? How long am I going to wait for your deliverance? When is it going to come? This verse is important because Jesus either quotes it or alludes to it in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 27, he says, My soul is greatly troubled because the hour has come and my purpose has come for me to go to the cross. But he says, for this reason, I have come. So he doesn't say, I want to be delivered out of the suffering. He recognizes that his soul is troubled and that he is headed toward the cross. And then he petitions the father for salvation. But again, he repeats that this is his purpose. His purpose, he knows, was to suffer in our place. And this gives us great confidence because Jesus drinks the cup of death for us. As we think about the psalm and we think about David's words, we have to hear in David's words the words of Christ. The greater David, the better David, the promised one who would suffer in our place. And it's that suffering of Christ on our behalf, what we sometimes call vicarious suffering, suffering in another's place, substitutionary suffering. It's that suffering that allows Christians to bear up under hardship. Many of you are no doubt familiar with that famous hymn by Horatio Spafford, It Is Well With My Soul. You might know the story behind that hymn, and you're probably familiar with this as well. I think it's well known, but I'll just tell it to you here. He had sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him to Europe while he finished up some business in Chicago. The ship that his wife and daughters were on, however, collided with another ship, and it sunk within 12 minutes. Of the 313 passengers, 226 drowned, including the four Spafford daughters. A small rowboat spotted Mrs. Spafford floating on a piece of wreckage, still alive, and nine days later she was brought safely to shore, where she telegrammed Mr. Spafford and said, Saved alone, what shall I do? And so Mr. Spafford hurried to meet his wife in Europe by getting the next available ship. And while on his way across the Atlantic Ocean, he was summoned by the captain upon crossing the spot where his daughters drowned. And as the story goes, after standing upon that spot, he retreated to his cabin and wrote the famous words to, It is well with my soul. 
It's the third verse of It Is Well With My Soul that I want to draw your attention to. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He understood that the greatest thing that could happen to him was not the preservation of his daughters or his family. And even in the midst of incredible heartbreak, he understood that the great comfort that he had was in the gospel, that Jesus suffered in his place. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That Jesus' soul was greatly troubled so that we might greatly rejoice. That's precisely what he's getting at. I don't bear my sin. Rejoice, O my soul. This is the great hope of the gospel. It is not that you and I please God through our good works. It is that Christ has suffered in our place. And here in this psalm, David's suffering is just a shadow of the suffering of Christ who would suffer once for all. Our biggest problem is dealt with in Christ. And then David goes on to appeal to God's character. Verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Here I'm borrowing some categories from Matthew Henry. But here, notice he pleads for God's mercy. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. He's appealing to God's mercy character for his steadfast love that great word that we find throughout the old testament this is what king hezekiah does in second kings 20 when he learns that he is about to die and he appeals to the mercy of the lord and he receives that mercy and then we see david pleading god's glory in verse 5 for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, which is the place of the dead, it's an Old Testament term, who will give, who will give you praise? Now, the idea here isn't, as we know from the rest of Scripture and even from David, the idea isn't that we cease to exist upon death. The idea for David and the point he's trying to make is that if he should die, he no longer has opportunity to publicly praise the Lord. And so he appeals to God's glory. He says, Lord, if I die, how will I praise you? How will I bring you glory in this life? So he appeals to that. But his concern is with God's glory. Now, these next two verses provide great poetic expression to the depths of David's pain. Verses 7 and 8, what we'll, or, or verse 6 rather, is where we'll pick up. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping, with my weeping. There's some really, really good metaphors here. Uh, first off, if you have an older translation like the King James, you, you'll read there, I cause my uh, bed to, to swim with tears. Notice these parallel lines. Bed and couch are essentially the same concept here in the ancient world. 
But the word he uses for flood is a causative form of the verb to swim. So I cause it to swim. It's this powerful metaphor. I am weeping so much that my bed is drowning. It's floating on the waves of my tears. And then this next line, I drench, which I really don't like this word drench, because the more basic meaning of this Hebrew word is to melt. I melt my couch with my weeping. It's a really powerful image of a couch being completely saturated in weeping and simply disintegrating under those tears. Now remember, this is David. He slayed lions. He faced a giant, a great warrior named Goliath. But here he is overwhelmed by his affliction and he's overwhelmed before a holy God who has every right to rebuke him. He's overwhelmed by the fact that he may have offended or sinned against God. And Matthew Henry commented on this point. David, who could face Goliath himself and many another threatening enemy with an undaunted bravery, yet melts into tears at the remembrance of sin and under the apprehension of divine wrath. Again, he realizes he is standing before God, exposed and his eyes are weary from weeping. Verse 7. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Here he's reaching the breaking point. This is rock bottom for him. But this is also the transition because in the next verse he's going to turn to a note of confidence. So if we end the psalm here, it's just tragic. But it doesn't end here because God's plan of salvation goes forward. And we see that this psalm isn't even restricted to David. It isn't even ultimately about David. There is going to be this note of confidence that David's going to strike. This confidence that the Lord will hear him. And from all of this, we learn an important principle. Our affliction drives us to the Lord. Our affliction drives us to the Lord. Our sorrow drives us to the Lord. Again, we learn from our Christian forebears on this matter. Uh, Cotton Mather was an American Puritan. He's often associated with the Salem Witch Trials. That's an unfortunate association because if you look into the history, he was really trying to mitigate some of the devastating and more egregious actions of that period. But Cotton Mather had a difficult life. He married Abigail in 1686. They had nine children. Five of those did not survive early childhood. And then, just 16 years into marriage, Abigail herself died. Cotton then married his second wife, Elizabeth, in 1703. They had six children. And in 1713, just 10 years into their marriage, the measles epidemic came and Elizabeth was the first to die. Followed days later by his twin infant daughters, followed by a third daughter. On the back of a book, he wrote down the names of his children in two columns, writing at the bottom, of 15, nine are dead. And you might think that would break a person. It certainly feels like it would break me. But shortly after all of that heartbreak, Cotton wrote these words, only let me obtain this one thing of him, a soul full of Christ. He was a man with a singular gaze on Christ. His affliction only drove him deeper 
to Christ. And we can take great comfort in this additional fact that Christ, too, was a man of sorrows. Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, would suffer. But even in that suffering, Jesus' prayers were heard. And if that were not true, we could not say anything good or positive about this next part of the psalm. We would simply have to end the psalm after verse 7. But because Christ has suffered in our place, and because more importantly He was raised for our justification, we have hope. So David transitions here in these final three verses to confidence. And here we see a picture, a shadow, a pointing, a lighthouse, if you will, to the New Testament, to this doctrine that Christ suffered in our place, but He was raised, and we too will be raised if we are in Him. So verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Do you see the confidence? The Lord has heard me. And he'll say this again and again and again. Verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And then there's the reversal I mentioned earlier. David has been troubled. His soul has been troubled. But the Lord has now heard. And now it is his enemies who will be troubled. Verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So David, for two-thirds of this psalm, strikes deep chords of despair. I melt my bed in my tears. And yet here he is flipped and he moves to complete confidence that the Lord will hear and the Lord will reverse the situation. And we can have an even greater assurance than David has in this psalm because this psalm is not ultimately about David, but it is about the greater son of David, the one who will sit on David's throne forever and ever. It is about the real king. It is about Jesus. Our assurance that God will hear us and deliver us lies in the resurrection of Christ. That is where our assurance is fixed. In this psalm, we hear the voice of Christ who suffered for our sake. I pointed that out when Jesus in John chapter 12 says, My soul is greatly troubled. But in this psalm, we also see that the suffering of Jesus is not the final word. The truth that the Lord hears the cries of the psalmist and routes the enemies is most clearly seen in the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Hebrews 5, 7. It should be there on the screen for you. In the days of His flesh, being His incarnation, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, just like we see David doing here. With loud cries and tears, just like we see David doing here. To Him who was able to save Him from death, just like we see David doing here. And he was heard, just like we see David saying, he will be heard. Or consider Paul's explanation of Abraham's faith in Romans 4, which Dennis read part of this, and I'll get to that, but I want to back up and get to verse 17 first. In verse 17 of Romans 4, Paul writes, As it is written, and here he's quoting the Old Testament, I have made you the father of many nations, talking to Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, Notice how God is described, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
And then he makes this point, this culmination here in chapter 4, in verses 21 through 25, which Dennis read for us. Abraham fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, his faith in what God is promising to do. Faith in the coming Christ. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But notice this, the words counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Ours also. You and me sitting here today, almost 2,000 years after Jesus' death. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, we worship the God who raises the dead. And Christ is our assurance. He was delivered up for our trespasses. That is, He died for our sins, being the substitute, bearing the rebuke that David's so fearful of in verse 1, bearing that rebuke on our behalf, but then being raised, and I love this phrase, and it's so important, being raised for our justification. Remember, this word means for our righteousness, our right standing before God. It, it, it almost carries a legal sense in the sense of standing just before a judge. And so when we stand before God, we don't stand before Him saying, Lord, look what I've done. We stand before Him saying, look at what Christ has done, and I am in Christ. See, apart from the saving work of Christ, apart from His death, apart from His resurrection, we would too be crushed under the wrath of God. We would be destroyed. But Christ was delivered for us. He was raised for our justification. And we are, as a result, called to repent and put our trust in Him. And as I've said several times already, if none of these things happened, if Christ was not raised for our justification, this psalm would have no hope. We would have no basis to say the Lord will hear us. We would have no hope for the afflictions or the challenges we face. We would simply be left to despair like everyone else. And yet there is hope. Let me close by reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning in verses 17 and 18, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Remember, Christ is raised for our justification. If Christ is not raised, we just have a good man who died. And that's it. A good teacher who died, who taught us some nice things that really aren't that unique when you look at other teachers around the world. If you're just talking about his basic ethical teaching. But in Christ, if he is alive, we have justification. We have righteousness before a holy God. We are no longer in our sins. And so he goes on, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ is not alive, that's the end. It's over. There's no hope whatsoever. But that's not what we believe. Verses 21 through 23 in that same chapter. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, the first fruits are like the first thing you get off a harvest. Meaning, we know what to expect because we've seen the initial fruit. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning, what happened to him will happen to those who are in him. 
Those who have died will be raised with him. For as by a man came death, that is, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that is, Christ. For as in Adam all die, this is what Paul says in Romans, that in Adam's sin we all sin, and we're all under the same penalty of sin because of Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here lies our hope that in Christ we too can be raised. In Christ we have hope because He is alive. That's the claim. And we can share in His resurrection by putting our trust in Him. That is our deliverance. That is the answer to David's prayer. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The Lord has done in Christ what he promised to do all along. This is our salvation. And in Christ, we have hope in the deepest and darkest of places. Because in Christ, God hears and will deliver us. Let me repeat that. In Christ, God hears and will deliver us. That is what Calvin knew. That's what Spafford wrote about in It Is Well With My Soul. That's what Cotton Mather knew when he wrote down 15 children, nine of whom are no longer with him, having already buried two wives. He knew these things. In Christ, God hears those who are His, and He will deliver them. And there is great security in that. Let me pray for us. At the end of my prayer, I would invite you to join me in the Lord's Prayer, which will be on the screen if you need it for reference. Lord, we are so grateful for the doctrine that we've seen and heard this morning. We're thankful for your word that expounds it so clearly to us that in Christ, we too have the hope of the resurrection. As he, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection. And so we place our hope in that this morning. Lord, I, I pray for those who are already believers that they would find great comfort in hearing the gospel explained and celebrated. And for those who are still relying on any other thing to save them, who are still not raised with Christ, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that there is nothing they can possibly do to deliver themselves from your just anger, from your just wrath, but that they would see in Christ the great hope of your mercy and of your goodness. I pray that you would open eyes to the gospel. I pray that you would stir affections, that you would warm our hearts around these truths. I pray that our church would be so committed to this and to nothing else. I pray that we would be people who are so focused on the gospel that we would be bold in our witness and that we would be absolutely committed to proclaiming it every time we open our mouths. We pray these things in Christ and now we pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.